welcome back once again to the Kyle Style Podcast. I want to call this ninth episode Carl Sagan Flavored Kool-Aid. <laughs> so I'm trying to trying to find a, you know, a, a theme or a tone for this podcast overall. And so far I've just kind of been having fun, you know, a little creepy pasta reading and uh Maybe just read the news, that kind of thing, and give you my opinion. But uh, I want to do something kind of like the last episode, uh, the Sonny Bean Salish Feet one. But uh, what I'm trying to do is draw a connection. So I wanted to do a podcast on both of these topics, and I found that I could kind of lump them together. So Carl Sagan flavored Kool-Aid, all right? So one of my favorite books that I, I like to recommend to people in terms of nonfiction is Carl Sagan's Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark. And it's of broad scope as to the nature of science, scientific uh, literacy and reasoning, critical thinking, and science education, specifically in America, right? But it's full of, you know, that Carl Sagan uh, kind of wonder and interest and an ability to raise, you know, interesting and unique uh, topics and concepts to kind of jumpstart people's fascination and to make scientific principles and theories more accessible. So I'll start off with a, a little reading from the opening chapter of Demon Haunted World. And this came about after a uh, he had a conversation with a taxi driver or a limo driver who was very interested in, you know, what he thought of as scientific topics like Atlantis and, uh, you know, aliens and whatnot. And, you know, Carl, I'm sure in a, <laughs> in a polite way, uh, shot him down about that and, uh, you know, laid it down more clearly how, you know, Atlantis doesn't have any evidence and there's no evidence for aliens really either. And he saw this person getting upset, kind of getting kind of sad that their little, their pseudoscientific mysteries were being shot down. But they shouldn't be. And then this made him realize that there's a, a, a problem in our skepticism, our critical thinking, and our scientific literacy in America. So, here is, here's a, a couple paragraphs. I was going to do my Carl Sagan voice, but uh, I've found that trying to do Carl Sagan uh, makes me sound more like Walter Cronkite. <laughs> maybe, maybe if I did Walter Cronkite, it'd sound more like Sagan. But I'm just going to read it in my normal voice. So, Science arouses a soaring sense of wonder, but so does pseudoscience. Sparse and poor popularizations of science abandon ecological niches that pseudoscience promptly fills. If it were widely understood that claims to knowledge require adequate evidence before they can be accepted, there would be no room for pseudoscience. But a kind of Gresham's Law prevails in popular culture by which bad science drives out good. All over the world, there are innumerable numbers of smart, even gifted people who harbor a passion for science, but that passion is unrequited. Surveys suggest that some 95% of Americans are scientifically illiterate, 
that's just the same fraction as those African Americans, almost all of them slaves, who were illiterate just before the Civil War, when severe penalties were in force for anyone who taught a slave to read. Of course, there's a degree of arbitrariness about any determination of illiteracy, whether it applies to language or to science. But anything like 95% illiteracy is extremely serious. So that kind of couches the approach or the uh, perception there. And it relates to the other topic that I'm drawing a connection to. You may have already guessed. Uh, if you mention Kool-Aid in any kind of serious nature. I discovered this second topic. I think I was probably, yeah, I was probably maybe 13 or 14 probably at home alone uh watching tv and back when back before A&E uh, the arts and entertainment channel did uh you know duck dynasty and other you know probably nonsensical uh fashion shows and reality shows and stuff they actually had you know shows it was sort of like journalism and there was a show called the 20th century with mike wallace and Mike Wallace was a correspondent who'd been, I don't know, he'd been in World War II, Korea, Vietnam. He'd been all over the place for, for half of the 20th century. And he hosted the show and narrated the show. And they did an episode on the, of course, fairly, I mean, I feel like most people know uh, at least a little bit about Jonestown, Reverend Jim Jones and the People's Temple. Thus the Kool-Aid, <laughs> Carl Sagan-flavored Kool-Aid. Um, at, at a young age, I was fascinated, not maybe a little bit morbidly with just the, the deaths and everything, but just the the idea that people would follow their you know preacher, pastor, to a remote jungle somewhere and allow themselves to and their children and their their parents their siblings to all be poisoned to death um they would at least many of them apparently willingly went along with this and all predicated on a belief that they were going i guess into god's hands but that their their suicide had a meaning and a message and the people that left they left behind, you know, uh, other family members who survived it or were not part of the church there, as confused as anyone else. And this event occurred in 1978. And here we are, uh, what, 37 years later. And I still find it fascinating. A lot of people find it fascinating. There's numerous documentaries and books about it. There's even conspiracy theories that have sprung up over time about this CIA involvement and all that. And I wanted to also talk a little bit about how I, having studied about Jonestown and the circumstances that led up to its founding, its creation, and then the ultimate destruction, I found you come across, and you might come across it if you're ever in any, you know, questionable uh, subreddits or web forums, links to what is known as the Jonestown Death Tape. 
specifically is a is a piece of evidence. It's uh, FBI evidence number Q as in Queen zero four two, and there are. It's one of these recordings that I think you, if you listen to it, it could be. It would be like something. I mean, I could edit together something that almost sounds like this, right? And you would just go, "Oh, okay. I don't. I don't understand what's happening here." So I wanted to give a little, a little background, and you know, to kind of tell the story of the People's Temple, and. In all that negativity, it's a very dark story. Uh, keep the Carl Sagan part alive. Okay? Remember, remember all the beautiful things Carl Sagan talks about in Cosmos. I remember some of that clip that I or that little selection I read earlier, and we'll uh, we'll dive into the Jonestown mass suicide, or was it a mass murder? So the People's Temple was formed in Indianapolis, Indiana, in the mid-1950s uh, by a apparently charismatic young Jim Jones, right? And he had, a, he had a different approach to preaching and to Christianity. He preached what he called uh, apostolic socialism. So that would be sort of like being an apostle for socialism. And you could almost equate that to that kind of hippie Jesus idea, that uh, you know, Sermon on the Mount kind of uh, approach. And to his credit, he, he insisted, remember 1950s, Indiana, he insisted that his church be integrated. And this was quite controversial. Um, he wanted any, anyone and everyone to be welcome in his church. And having come from, he came from a, a troubled background, a broken family and everything, and you start to see these pieces fall into place when the story really starts to unfold, where he was maybe seeking attention, he really wanted a sense of power and control, right? But, uh, but again, to his credit, he also, uh, you know, he adopted children of other races, uh, I think a Korean child, a black child, he had his own ch children, of course. Um, but he, he, in a sense, practiced what he preached and gathered a following of, you know, I guess you'd call them progressive-minded, uh, you know, lo white local people, as well as, you know, other minorities who, you know, were amazed at being kind of, uh, maybe welcomed into a, a white man's church. So after building a, a bit of a following um, and fearing for an apocalypse, essentially a, a nuclear holocaust, right? And knowing that the nuclear strikes would probably be close to where they were, they looked at some uh, you know, maps of where there would be theoretically uh, safe regions in America, and one of those places is Redwood Valley, California. And they moved there in uh, 1965. Now, keep in mind, I'm going to point out again, go back to episode two of the Kyle Style podcast, look at uh, the cultural fallout episode, and there it is again, you know. Um, people 
the, this exodus of followers of Jim Jones that started as a result of fears of uh, nuclear annihilation, nuclear war, and that that theme of nuclear war stayed throughout his uh, leadership and that, that paranoia and that fear. So again, uh, caught in the ripples of the uh, nuclear arms race here. And so when they arrived in Redwood Valley, California, you know, West Coast, a little more liberal, a little more progressive. It's 1965, um, you know, that uh, summer of love kind of kind of vibe. And they grew even larger, even faster. Um, you know, other more like-minded people joined them, and they built uh, they built a community. You know, they they really had a lot of people doing a lot of work. They had a farm. They had buses, like a fleet of buses. And using those buses, they became uh, politically active. And this led to uh, Jim Jones becoming something of a celebrity in his time. You know, he, he was this charismatic leader who was doing all this great work with the elderly and the minorities and, you know, even addicts, helping get people off the street, that kind of thing. And allegedly, apparently, this this really is true. He really did help a lot of people get off drugs and, you know, find housing and become part of that community, which, again, to his credit. Um, but, you know, in the course of doing this, he became the head of the uh, San Francisco Housing Authority. Um, and he met with uh, vice president walter mondale first lady rosalind carter uh was uh known to uh, meet with governor jerry brown and lieutenant governor mervin demali i don't know who these people are but you know they're high up in government and at least in the state and then you know meeting the first lady and uh an assemblyman named willie brown uh among others uh hosted a, a dinner in honor of Jim Jones in uh, September of 1976. But as we know now, with a lot of cults, there's uh, a downside, there's a dark side. So especially with a lot of the elderly followers, um, a lot of times elderly black people who were susceptible to you know, that that message of tolerance, I suppose, it kind of maybe pulled them in and this sort of hope for a, a community that was that would not judge them for their race. Uh, he would have these elderly people sign over their homes, their uh, Social Security money to the church. And in, in, in exchange, they had, a, you know, a senior center for senior care. And, you know, kind of bring them into the church community and care for them while taking their financial assets. So it wasn't a complete ripoff, of course, but, uh, yeah, but you know, it's a little, a little fishy when you start to get lots of money involved, right? Now, also in this, around this time is when, uh, at least I'm aware that the, his, sermons and his speeches would involve uh faith healings and you know you'd touch people with his healing hands and they would get up out of their wheelchairs and everybody would rejoice and they would all sing together about sing his praises that jim jones had you know magic powers right 
And even some of the followers later noticed that the people who he was healing were just people who were other members of the church or that were employed by the church. They were, you know, secretaries and whatnot. And, you know, they were they were faking it. So a little a little call back to your, your Carl Sagan there, right? Be aware of shenanigans and shysters, right? It sounds too good to be true, maybe it is. And he allegedly was curing people's cancer and all kinds of, all this all this stuff. So there were also allegations of sexual abuse, sexual misconduct with some of the young young ladies. They also kept a lot of people uh, working a lot, like six days, six to seven days a week, you know, round the clock, getting very little sleep. So this kind of eroded people's, uh, you know, ability to really process what was going on. So fall of 1973, newspaper articles were critical of Jim Jones and People's Temple, um, and there were defectors that they had interviewed, defectors from the church. And this sparked a uh, this sparked a, a urgency to Jim Jones to try to get a, a safe haven out of the country before this kind of pub, uh, publicity axe could fall. So, in 1976. The, after negotiating with the uh, government of Guyana, which is, of course, uh, on the north coast of South America, they negotiated with the Guyanese government and leased uh, over 3,000 acres, like 12 square kilometers of land in northwest Guyana, uh, basically jungle. The site was known to, you know, it's very, very isolated. It was near an airstrip and a, one small town, but uh, it had a very low fertility soil. You know, even, even the Guyanese didn't want to, you know, cultivate there. So 500 members of the, of the temple went down and began construction of the now famous Jonestown, uh, actually officially known as the People's Temple Agricultural Project. And they, you know, they built a... They built a village, and eventually Jim Jones went down himself and sort of shot a propaganda video, which I've you know, I've seen at least clips of in documentaries and things, where he talks about uh, the progress they're making and all the supplies and everything they have, and talks to the current members who are there and how they're getting on, and all of them seem very happy. They're very excited about the good work they're doing, and they're going to make a a safe place for all of everyone else who wants to come. They're going to, you know, build this little, little socialist uh, tolerance haven in the jungle, right? So, summer 1977, Jones and several hundred other temple members moved to Jonestown to escape, again, some of that media pressure that was building, right? And... For the first several months, temple members, again, worked like six days a week from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. with a small break for lunch, right? Around the clock, heavy manual labor. And according to one documentary, which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to include a, a bunch of links at the bottom here. A bunch of links. 
one documentary indicated that, uh, you know, at first, and this is based on some interviews with survivors, that they were, you know, they were having rice and beans and vegetables and uh, chicken every, you know, every day, every other day, that kind of thing. Everybody was eating well. Well, uh, after more of these, you know, other stateside members started to arrive, which was really families reuniting, you know, because families had kind of split up. Some of them had gone and, and they'd communicate via radio and whatnot. And this was now a big uh, reuniting of families, right? So they kind of had to bring all these people. So now hundreds more people. Now over a thousand people. And Jonestown was not self-sufficient. So at the arrival of all these extra people, it strained their uh, food resources. It strained their, uh, you know, their housing and everything. And... This start. This is where it really starts to get out of control, right? Uh, Jones is implementing like these kind of Maoist, uh, you know, Soviet group behavior control techniques, uh, having people sort of snitch on one another, uh, sending out people to, uh, you know, suggest that they want to leave, and then if anyone else agrees, then they turn them in. Uh, children encouraged to turn their parents in for saying anything negative about Jim Jones, who by this time they called him father, right? They just called him father and all of everything that had, that they, that he had done for them, they, or that he, everything that it was good in their life was uh, attributed to Jim Jones and his message and his, his love. And, uh, during this time, even other activists, right? Uh, uh, Angela Davis and Huey Newton communicated via radio telephone and urged them to stay strong against the, the conspiracy against them, which Jones was always ranting about. And when I say ranting, there were speakers wired up through the compound, and Jones would get on the, the loudspeaker and, and preach and proselytize and rant about about uh, how the government was against them and multinational corporations were against them because they were socialists and um, how there were the, the, the rest of America was racist and they were going to start rounding up all the black people in America and this was the only, Jonestown was the only safe place for all the black congregation members and uh, really just pushed this conspiracy theory and for the people who were there they had no access to any radios or any other communications, so to them, they thought that this was real, that this was actually happening back home, right? That there was, you know, nuclear strikes were imminent, and it was really that they needed to stay there. They were only safe there. Now, at the same time, Jones was noted to have kind of gone off the rails himself a little bit, like even the devout followers could tell that his speech was slurring and that he wasn't as he would trail off in the middle of sentences, that kind of thing. And he was uh, alleged, I don't know how accurate this is, but he was alleged to be taking his, even you know, cocaine, Valiums, Quaaludes, other stimulants, LSD, and you know, barbiturates he was drinking. And this was all contributing to this uh, mental and physical breakdown. It's kind of interesting how this kind of occurred. 
he was having rapid weight loss, uh, convulsions, high blood pressure, strokes, and he was even having, like, I guess, like, gout, like, uh, swelling of his extremities. And you you wonder what is causing that. Maybe it was these drugs. Maybe it was stress. Maybe he was just paranoid. Maybe he had something, something else going on. But... Uh, so again, the because the the the, the village wasn't uh, self sufficient, they had to import a lot of commodities like wheat. Okay? And even in that, there were people who claimed to still claimed to be happy there. Right? They claimed to be happy. Now the community also, you know, had a nursery. They had like thirty three infants born. They had a clinic. There were doctors. In some ways, they, um, you know, in some ways, people were really putting their best into it. They were putting their all into it, and they really believed in it. And it's part of the heartbreaking thing about it is that people doing their kind of doing their best to to make a world that that they could all share and they could all live in. It's it's quite beautiful, but when you look at the actual context, it's you know, terrifying, and and you take into account things like the uh, the Guyanese government had agreed to kind of uh, uh, bookmark all the temple members uh, when they arrived. So if they attempted to leave and whatnot, they they could track them. Right? They could uh, they would prevent uh, people's temple members from fleeing the country by you know canceling or overriding their visas and passports. So that's you know, that's creepy as well. And after the arrival of Jim Jones in Jonestown, uh, even some of the members noted that it became a much darker place, right? I mean, you've got speakers blaring either Jim Jones talking on it or tapes, tape recordings of him talking 24-7. And occasionally you would wake up to what's called a, a white knight. White knight. White knight. A white knight come to the pavilion. Called everyone make your way to the together. pavilion. White knight. To the white central knight. pavilion, a large you know, public white space. White knight. And they would all do a dress rehearsal for the, you know, the drinking of the, the Kool-Aid. It was actually Flavor-Aid brand uh, fruit juice mix. Not Kool-Aid, but Kool-Aid sticks. And they would, you know, do a dress rehearsal for it and kind of prepping them for it and, and also continuing to, you know, deprive them of sleep and everything. So so I, in light of all of this stuff, Congressman Leo Ryan of California was aware of it. There had been family members and defectors who had approached him and there was these, you know, media reports and everything. So he he decided he was going to fly down there. Uh, on November fourteenth, nineteen seventy eight, he flew down with a delegation and some some of the family members and defectors, and a news crew. And they made their way to the jungle to, to Jonestown. At first, they didn't want to let the you know the family members or the or the news crew with them. Just just the you know congressman and his his staff. And they toured Jonestown. They saw the sights and everything. And uh, the they had a party that night, and everybody was well fed. And uh, 
and this start this starts to get a little more complicated and it's a little more specific than maybe I want to get but he tells the crowd and Jim Jones like hey I I I like what I see here. This isn't as bad as I, you know, was told it was. And you've kind of got a great thing going here. And there's applause from everybody. Well, the end result of this visit, though, was that Jim Jones kind of just went off the rails. He just, he, you know, you can hear him in clips. He's saying, you know, just leave us alone and just get out of here. And we don't want to go back. And no one here wants to go. Well, some people did want to go. The, somebody slipped them, uh, slipped one of the uh, uh, news crew who were eventually let in, and slipped them a note saying, "Hey, here's my name, and I want to get out of Jonestown." Okay. And so the next day, this would have been, you know, uh, after a travel day and then overnight stay. Now it's the morning of November 18th. Some, you know, 14 people uh, decided to defect and go with the congressman because they wanted to go home and at least according to the wikipedia article that is has some info on this while this was happening someone you know asked one of them hey why do you want to leave and he said this is a communist prison camp <laughs> to give you a sense well they they started to depart to go back to the airstrip and during this transitional time, it was very emotional, and no one was sure quite what was going to happen. Uh, someone, uh, one of the temple followers, uh, attacked the congressman with a knife. They were able to kind of fend him off and restrain him, but they were like, all right, we need to get the hell out of Dodge, right? We need to get out of here. So everybody that had come, plus the 14 defectors, they all head back to the airstrip now. They needed to get another plane because now they had more people than they had thought that they you know had come with, so they get another plane there. In this time, Jones kind of gives the order for people to follow them down to this airstrip while the the people are getting in one plane and it begins taxiing down the runway. A truck with a trailer pulls up, and men inside pop up with. You know, probably AK-47s and rifles, and start shooting all of the you know, defectors and the family members and the news crew and congressman and his people, and kill of you know many of them. Some of them were able to flee into the jungle and escape, but killed many of them, including the congressman. One of the only times that a congressman has been killed in office, by the way. And this is caught on video, and I'll try to include a link down there for the equally uh, morbidly minded. Well, so this... Meanwhile, one of the defectors that had joined them, other defectors knew was a loyalist to Jones, and they, they told the other defectors, like, and the congressman, this guy's not really trying to leave. This guy's suspicious, right? Well, as this plane was taxiing down the runway, he pulls out a gun, starts shooting the people in the plane. They disarm him and some of the wounded people. They flee into the jungle, and we have some of their testimony now. They've done interviews and and whatnot. Meanwhile, back at Jonestown is the kind of the beginning of what you call the Jonestown death tape. Uh, He calls a white knight, gathers everybody to the pavilion, uh, they bring out barrels and they start mixing the drink with uh, cyanide and valium, chloral hydrate, 
and Fenergan. I'm sure these all had some use in this, you know, toxic mixture. And they, you can, you can hear in the tape, especially Jim Jones urging everybody, you know, please hurry. There's nothing we can do. We just, we all got to drink this poison. And, um, and yeah, the one member who you can hear on the tape speak up and protest what's happening is a, was a woman named Christine Miller. When we destroy ourselves, we're defeated. We well, let them, the enemy, defeat us. Did you, see, did you see I live to fight no more forever? Yes, I saw that. Did you not have some sense of pride and victory in that man? He would not subject himself to the will and whim of people who tell that they're going to come in whenever they please and push into our house, come when they please, take who they want to, talk to who they want to. Is that living? That's not living to me. That's not freedom. That's not the kind of freedom I sought. But I think where they made their mistake is when they stopped to rest. If they had gone on, they would have made it. But they stopped to rest. I'm talking about what we have no other road. I will take your, your call. We will put it to the Russians. And I can tell you the answer now because I'm a prophet. Call the Russians and tell them to see if they'll take us. I said I'm afraid to die. I don't think no you means. are. I don't think you are. But uh, I look at our babies and I think they deserve I, to live. I agree. You know? They des- but also they deserve what's more. They deserve peace. And she argues for the lives of the children. That maybe they can escape to Russia. And now, it, and now Jones has told them about the killing the, of the congressman and everything. And so he he just shoots up down and she's shouted down by the mob you know how how dare you be disloyal to father and you're only standing here because he was here in the first place so i don't know what you're talking about having an individual life your life has been extended to the day that you're standing there I'm not doing it justice, and I don't know if I should do it justice. It's kind of its own thing. Now now that you know some of the context, if you feel so inclined, you, you can listen to the tape, and you'll, you'll really kind of get the, the severity of it. So 909 people uh, lined up. They gave them, the, they gave them uh, the little kids, they gave them like syringes with the needle out so they could squirt it in their mouths. And, and the older children can help love the little children and, and reassure them. They aren't crying from pain. It's just a little bitter tasting, but they're, they're not crying out of any pain. The adults drank you know, cups of it, and not, not everybody went willingly, though. Um, some people were like injected with it, like Christine Miller. Uh, other people were shot, and uh, I believe some people were shot with like even crossbow, you know, bolts, darts. And but within, you know, if you listen to that tape, that tape is about 45 minutes long. At the beginning, you hear everybody, and you know, by the end, is just this silence. Silence, except for. battery-powered tape player that's running down with one of Jones's previous uh, uh, 
sermons on it or, or lectures on it. And so it creates this haunting atmosphere. I guess I guess the rest is history, you know. Uh, Nine hundred and nine people went to the jungle to build a utopia, uh, led astray by a megalomaniac, uh, a drug-addled uh, psychopath, an abuser, and it was the largest intentional loss of life until 9-11, uh, of, of Americans until 9-11. So think about that, right? And... There's, again, I'm going to include the links. There's a ton of uh, documentaries. Some of them are really long. You know, this is like one of my longest podcasts so far, just trying to kind of cover it. And if you're, you know, going back to the Carl Sagan thing, if you're interested in, you know, rationality, you're interested in uh, skepticism, listen to the Jonestown death tape, and you'll hear people arguing for stepping over to the other side. And they have no real idea that there's anything there. These two is, you know, a skeptic like me. And they're, you know, they're talking about poisoning their own children. I was respect die with a degree of dignity. Lay down your life with dignity. Don't lay down with tears and agony. It's nothing to death, it's like Max said, it's just stepping over in another plane. Don't, don't be this way. Stop this hysterics. This is not the way for people who are socialist to communists to die. It's just, it, it, it's not about the total number of lives, you know. More, more people die, you know, from other things and everything. But it's so intentional, and they refer to it as an act of revolutionary suicide. You control how you die, right? And not letting the government stormtroopers that are going to descend on the compound torture and murder all the old people and babies, which is what he was telling the people was going to happen. And they believed him. Take our life from us. We laid it down. We got tired. We didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. Yeah, I mean that closes the kind of closes the story on Jonestown. But like I said, I wanted to I wanted to keep that Carl Sagan awe kind of in there. Like we can prevent things like this from happening. You might be able to prevent it from happening to yourself, maybe to a loved one. Um, not even anything necessarily that severe or something that crazy. But uh, we're we write a fine line in our modern world. Everybody's got a smartphone, and everybody. You know, a lot of people have gone, gone to college and everything else, and, and a lot of times educated people are more at risk than other people. And you you might find yourself in a Waco or a Jonestown um, under the thumb of a, a maniac. And uh, I don't know, I think that uh, God, there's not even anything to really say. Like, it, the story is what it is. We're really removed from it now, but... Uh, it it makes me concerned when you think about the you know the literacy levels and uh, and the awareness levels of especially like a lot of young people today 
and how we intend to proceed as a culture, as a species. So, I don't know. Do some do some reading. Do some studying. You know, uh, enlighten yourself. Empower yourself. Thanks for listening.